WDYKA. The What Do You Know About podcast. Each episode, we'll be breaking down pop culture topics from totally different worlds. What do you know about video games, reality TV, science fiction, true crime, tech, YouTubers, and more. Let's get into it. to episode three of What Do You Know About podcast. I am Michaela, one of your hosts, and I'm here with my wonderful husband. Chris, your other host. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we have some new equipment. We have another microphone. Yes, we're no longer recording on the same microphone, so uh, that's exciting. (laughs) We don't have to have this crazy janky whole setup here so that's pretty nice yeah we both have we we kind of have a, a nice little podcasting desk set up now instead of having to weirdly huddle in a corner around a single microphone and make sure we're talking the right spot it's true yeah so we're we're happy to be back we were off for a week um on vacation and we both are currently like at the end slash recovering from a cold. So just FYI, if you hear some craggly voices, that might be why. But uh, we're mostly on the mend. So uh, anyways, I'm excited to get in today's episode. Uh, we're going to start off today with our who goes first uh game i don't even know if this is technically a game yeah, exactly well let's let's recap here in week one i talked about the video game starcraft why do you need to go back to week one we're, we're we, because we're on we're 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 on we're only on episode three and this might be a first episode some people are listening to i don't know fair enough in uh, week one, we talked about the video game StarCraft, as well as the TV show The Bachelor, and our game was, uh, what was it, Rock, Paper, Scissors? That was yeah. last week. No. Rock, was. Paper, Scissors. Uh, and last week, we talked about the card game Magic the Gathering and the urban legend of the Hell House yes. in Ellicott City, Maryland. And we did a deck of playing cards, draw highest card wins. This week, uh, I've gathered a bunch of dice. I have three black dice and three blue dice, a six-sided die, a 12-sided die, and a 20-sided die of each. The way we're going to do this is we're going to roll, and the blue are like positive numbers, and the black are negative numbers. So I'm going to go first here. All right. So for the six-sided die, I have negative two. Okay, we're not going to say which die is what. Okay, just gotta add it all up. <laughs> the 12-sided die is six, and the 20 is negative three. So I have one. <laughs> you got one. One is my number. Beat that. One is above average. It's, it's one above the middle score you could get. Which one's the negative? Black. The black is negative. So let's see. Negative four on the 20s. This isn't more interesting than the card game thing. No, it really isn't. I thought it would be. 
if we had rolled less dice. I mean, you beat me, so. Did I? This is four. Uh, five is nine. Negative three oh, is okay. six. Okay. You got six and I got one. All right. Awesome. So the I boring go first. episode of What Do You Know About Podcast today. It's not boring. How do you know what I'm going to talk about? No, I meant because of the dice. Oh, the dice. And because of my bored sounding voice because I'm, I am I have a cold. <laughs> you know, I'm like... Welcome. You're like Phoebe when she gets her cold and, and she's like, oh my gosh, my voice. And she loves to sing with it. Yeah. But you're like the opposite. You're like, my voice, ugh. And I'm like... Uh, you should start singing. To, well, you know what? my voice sound because i ha- i'm in my ears right now and you're yeah I, you, d- you don't have me on your headphones right now right so i'm hearing myself so i'm like this, you know, <laughs> up close to them, like, you know. Mm. anyways uh for the first time in show history i won first i get to go first yeah exactly that's exciting okay well uh today's topic that i'm bringing to you christopher I, I'm sure you know what this is, but you probably don't know, like, much, I don't know, history and all that kind of stuff. And exactly. I guess the question is, what do I know about it? So, yeah. What do you know about mukbangs? Oh, God. (laughs) That's not how you pronounce it, right? It is. That's, so, it's Korean. I look, you know, I, I listen to a Korean pronunciation of it. A lot of people say mukbang because it's how it's spelled, you know, okay, American, okay. whatever. But it, it, yeah, if you're saying it in English, you probably think, oh, it's spelled like mukbang. Okay. But it's mukbang. Okay. okay. So maybe, tell me, Chris, what do you know about that? Yeah, may, maybe we should have known that. We, we, we live in an area where there are a lot of Korean people, a lot of Korean restaurants. Um, it's a nice place. Uh, but, uh. We should probably we get, know a we're very bit more lucky about with the food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Anyways, a mukbang. <laughs> I can't say I know much about it other than that it's like a genre of internet video where a person eats too much food and it's kind of like gross. But I guess people watch it. Be- I, I don't know why people watch it. I guess it's satisfying for some people. I guess it depends. I, I, there's this one guy that is famous or infamous <laughs> for starting out on the YouTube as like a violin player. Mm-hmm. And then he became a mukbanger and, mm-hmm. and gained like 300 pounds or something. Yeah. Uh, He's talking about Nikocado Avocado, everyone, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I know that you know your people you follow on the internet like to meme on him a lot yeah um he's easy to meme on that's that's the extent that's what i know about mukbang all right well uh all right we're gonna take it back to the where it originated you know who created this what is going on here what is it what is a mukbang what's the cultural context (laughs) right what is the cultural context of this what is the historicity of (laughs) the mukbang (laughs) okay so uh when you look up the definition of mukbang it 
literally just says a video, especially one that is live stream that features a person eating a large quantity of food and addressing the audience. So that is like the basic description of what a mukbang is. And it's pretty much that. Um, and it's changed a little bit over the years, but that's pretty much what a mukbang is. So, uh, mukbangs originated in Korea and translated, it means eating show. So they first streamed in South Korea in 2009, uh, on something called, uh, Africa TV. I, I, or Afrisa. Freaky TV. No, it's spelled A-F-R-E-E-C-A-T-V, which it, when I went on there, it's like a Twitch, but you know, South Korean. It, mm-hmm. it looks like Twitch. Lots of esports stuff happening. Lots of uh, StarCraft, perhaps. Probably. Throwback to yeah, the yeah. first episode. Um, exactly. There's some similarities, yeah. Lots of live streaming things. Uh, really, if you think about it, it's like StarCraft Episode 2 on What Do You Know About? Right. Right. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Yeah. The. Let's see. So... 2009 was when it was first streamed and in South Korea they even have like cable channels dedicated to mukbangs like they're very popular. So in most mukbang videos the hosts are interacting with the viewers through like a live chat and um, some of them will be cooking the food and then they'll sit down and eat it Um, and some uh do things like specifically go to you know restaurants and things like that and that's how a lot of them they make their money by both having like donations through their live streams you know twitch and all those places do donations and then also through sponsorships so like going to a specific restaurant because that restaurant's sponsoring you and you're going to go and eat their food and show off all the things that they have on their menu or trying out the new whatever from this place it is usually like an exorbitant amount of food the videos kind of all look very similar and I think they all have this sort of setup that's very similar where the food is kind of elevated on high up so that way the shot is really just like a big bunch of food and they're sort of like shoulder up. This this, this is what makes me uncomfortable on like the YouTube thumbnails. Tons of food (laughs) and them going like doing the surprise face like like hands on the face home alone like i can't believe it's so much food kind of big red arrow pointing at the food right they're like like, they're like ten thousand calories uh donut mukbang or something and you're like wait a second what i will get into that but uh that's you know that's usually the way that they visually look you can kind of You see the food, you don't really see a whole lot else but the food and sort of their shoulders up in their face and them eating. Um, So, obviously, like, my first question when I learned about mukbangs was, why do people watch this? And I've watched a, a documentary about this, which I definitely would suggest people watch if you're interested. It was really good. It's on YouTube by, um, the YouTuber Kiana, uh, Doherty. She talks about kind of, like, the psychology behind it and everything. I was, that was kind of my biggest thing, right? When I first learned about mukbangs, I was like, why, who's watching this and why? Why are people watching this? Well, 
I guess in South Korea, since it's such a huge thing, they've actually done like research on this to, you know, learn more about like what it is that people like about this. So uh, part of it they found had to do with people who eat alone, you know, live alone, they eat alone. Them watching these videos and watching the live streams made them feel, uh, you know, less alone and it, it made them feel like connected to someone and um, it relieved that sense of loneliness while they ate. Because I think in a lot of cultures, especially I think in um, Korean culture, like mealtime is, is very much like a, you know, sociable time or time with family or whatever. So if you're living alone, I think, I think it's true for anyone, but mealtime eating alone can be you know, very lonely, especially if you're used to, you know, eating with your family. So that was part of it. And then they also found that um, viewing others eat makes some people feel full. Like it, it, it curbs the craving of needing to eat. I, I can't personally fathom that. Whenever I watch these, I'm like, it's a mixture of things. It's disgust, but also like that looks so good and I want to eat that. You know, it's like it's like the opposite of a cooking video, right? Or at least in our culture, where right. watching cooking videos makes you feel hungry. Oh yes, yes, and that well, that's the thing is, like, there's times when I've watched a mukbang video and I go like, oh my gosh, that looks so good, and I want to eat that right now so much, and then other times where I'm like, this is nasty, like really gross. How can someone do this? I guess yeah. The one thing you mentioned, the other reason why. Uh, you know, people like watching this is because of like the ASMR type aspect of it. The satisfying, it's satisfying. Well, yeah, this, so this brought a lot, when you started describing, it reminded me of ASMR. Yeah. Which if people aren't familiar, it's another genre of internet video where it's a person alone addressing the viewer and it's really whispering. When people hear about ASMR, they're like, they're first, they're like, is this like a is this like a sex thing? Right. Or, and and you know, okay for some maybe for maybe but I don't think really. But, but I think then, it's more about the satisfying aspect of well, it. Okay. Calming. The mukbang? Oh, oh. No, just <laughs> ASMR. Nothing to me is calming about a mukbang, but or, or sexual. <laughs> well, so that is something that I found in my research. It is like a thing. It's like a fetish, I guess, pe- watching people eat. Um, especially like the really dirty, like, you know, slurping and like really excessive sounds and stuff like that. Yeah. Because people go kind of over the top when they do these videos, I've noticed. They'll be eating and they take huge bites, like massive bites. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know how to feel about it. But anyways, there are some, you know, mukbangers that specifically do like ASMR type videos, but um, that's not what all of them are, but some people are obviously find both the visual like aspect of like watching someone eat and the, the sounds of what, of someone eating like satisfying, which cannot relate. The sound of someone chewing food. Does that bother you? Cause it bothers me. It depends uh, on the chewing, but most of the time. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, I can't. well, over a microphone. I mean, if you're on a voice call, like if I'm a voice call and playing video game and one of my friends eating chips there's one friend in particular that always does that which is very annoying oh no do you want to give them a shout out no no 
No, no but name I have checking. Shouted this friend out on the show before, so. Oh no. <laughs> Go back to the tape. <laughs> oh no. All right, moving on. So, uh, where can you find these mukbang videos? YouTube, I assume, and and also on Twitch.tv, I assume. Yep, exactly. So that the one thing I mentioned, the Africa TV. That's like the the number one way that I think people, especially in Korea, watch. That's like their main streaming platform. The mukbang capital. And yeah, lots of esports and mukbangs. Is there esports? Well, okay, if you combine esports and mukbang, you know which you they get? do. No, I you, saw that. You, you combine esports and mukbang, you get the pr- professional hot dog, you know, contest. Oh, hilarious! Anyway, so yeah, you can watch it there. You can watch it on youtube some people's live stream on youtube but most of the youtube is like pre-recorded edited type stuff um which sort of differs from the the origins of mukbangs it's supposed to be live and interacting with the with the viewers and whatnot but um you know it it still counts and yeah like you mentioned twitch is another um common live streaming platform for mukbangs you know what's interesting is i saw that at one point twitch had like specifically a category called social eating that you could like you know put your videos under but they don't have that anymore they got rid of it i think everything that's not a video game is either just chatting music well just chatting there's also a music one i think and an art one yeah Mm -hmm. on twitch but I don't know what happened. They got rid of it, I guess. So moving on, what kind of people? Who? What kind of people are doing this? Who does this? Mm, Nikocado, <laughs> avocado. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so obviously there are tons and tons of Korean creators. I'm not going to name all of them. I'm just going to kind of go over some of the creators that are like the most well-known and the biggest. One of the most popular Korean creators uh, is someone named Bands, B-A-N-Z-Z. He has uh, over 2 million subs- subscribers on YouTube. And some of his videos, like his most popular one, got 15 million views. I mean, he's definitely very popular. Another uh, big uh, streamer who does this is Yuka Kinoshita. She's a Japanese um, streamer who has over... 5 million subscribers and like tons of her videos have like 10 to 20 million views. I mean, very popular. She's most known for having like these insane massive portions, like a huge massive wok filled with fried rice or whatever. Like, mm, sounds good. Uh, it does sound good, but like, you know, 20 eggs in a thing, like huge See, portions. For some reason, that doesn't sound gross. Whereas, you know, the plate that is like all cheeseburgers. Maybe it's, I mean, the American uh, mukbangs maybe are worse than the Asian ones you're saying. Maybe. I don't know. When I think of a mukbang from an English speaking person, I guess, I think of disgusting. Yeah. Maybe it's just that one guy, though. I think, I think you're just, Nikocado's tainted you. I don't even know. I mean, I, all I know is memes. I know. Well, anyway, so she's all so the same. She's also really no, well known for um, being really good at describing the way the food tastes and the sound that it makes while cooking. 
That's like people talk about that with her. That's why they like her. She's like really good at describing. See, that sounds like something that, you know, I feel like a lot of people would enjoy and I would enjoy, except for the amount. Yeah, I agree. I like I would watch I would watch somebody eating a meal and talking about it and like a vlog almost. And also they talk about the food yeah. and that kind of stuff. But why does it have to be? so much food i don't know i don't know why that's become like the thing i'm not really sure why that's like the the norm for for these kinds of videos i i don't know if it adds to like the satisfying aspect of it or or maybe it's purely just the the clicks you know getting people to watch your video i I have no idea i don't understand it and it that is to me what is most like shocking. I don't even know if I think it's disgusting per se because I I don't believe that they even eat anywhere near close to all of it. You know, they don't. How would it be possible, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's so many other Korean streamers and creators. I cannot name all of them. What was the first I just guy? named a couple. Um Bands, that's his It reminds name, me B A N Z Z. That's like all the all the the starcraft professionals the korean people they all have names like that yeah there's like maru and Byun and flash they're all like these little short you know names right you know and i I did try to watch their videos but none of them are in english so i couldn't tell what they were talking about but um and then i I tried to watch an english one and (laughs) he clicked off well so there there are a couple american um creators one's named uh stephanie sue and this is shocking to me she's very popular like very very popular but she um she does her mukbangs but she'll talk about um true crime and like conspiracy theory type stuff while she does the mukbang (laughs) so it'll be like it'll be like 30 Popeye's chicken sandwiches. I can't believe that he killed this woman and buried her body in his mom's backyard. And it's like, wait a second. What now? We're talking about Popeye's chicken sandwich and this brutal murder. I feel like that would be fine, too, if it wasn't so much food. Like if it was like maybe eating vlog, I got a meal and I'm going to eat the meal and I'm going to talk. It's like, no, I'm going to talk and also eat 30 chicken sandwiches. <laughs> like, Why does it? I, I understand the eating vlog. I don't understand the eating 30 sandwiches vlog. Yeah. I, I think my problem is, though, like she's talking about something so serious while also doing something so outrageous. Yeah. But I mean, one of your favorite YouTubers, Bailey Serene, Serene? Sarian, she does you know i mean okay maybe it's not quite as outrageous but you know she does she does like you know true crime vlogs Mm -hmm. while she does her makeup Mm -hmm. i I mean you know it's like okay you do true crime crime vlog along with something else makes sense at least you know to me who's had that context and i like i said earlier i think just eating a meal is not a bad idea to vlog with right i agree Especially if there are people out there that enjoy the sound of someone eating or like sa- that's satisfying to them. Not can't relate, but 
they exist. Uh, I wouldn't mind. I just don't get all close to the microphone. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, like, I don't mind. We'll get into this. So the next next uh, person I was going to talk about is a creator called Zach Choi. And uh, he's probably the most popular um, mukbang person on YouTube, like, period. He has 14 million subscribers, and, like, some of his videos have, like, almost 100 million views. I mean, he's very, very popular. Um, but what's interesting about him he is he does not talk to the camera. He doesn't talk at all during his mukbangs. It's purely ASMR. So he's... He, he has very high production value with his videos, and I was watching some today, and I was like, you know, th- I get it. I get this, because some some of them are, I just can't do, like, this mat, like, huge, huge servings of, like, noodles, but he had this one video that I was like, this is satisfying. This is genuinely satisfying, where, um, he just had like a, f- a bunch of different fried foods and it wasn't like too much. It was like a, a, a good amount of food, but not like too much food. And he just had the sound of him taking everything out of the bags and the sound of him laying them down and the sound of him biting into like a crunchy mozzarella stick. And it was like so crispy and so crunchy. And I was like, you know, this might get me because it was so satisfying to listen to. We all like watching cooking videos, but you know, we do. aside from this, eating videos mm. aren't, you know, aren't, I mean, obviously the topic of conversation, they are popular, but like, you know, very popular, like shockingly popular, but like, you're not, you're not seeing eating shows on the food network, you know, Oh no, not traditionally popular in a Western context. No, I mean, we don't have a, a mukbang. I mean, as far as I know, we don't have mukbang cable channels in America. I don't think. Oh, yeah, I guess what I mean is like, it's an internet thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, you know, cooking shows have been around a while and been popular. Yeah. But eating shows, I guess, yeah. are, inter- are, this, are, this, are this, you know, new internet thing, right. which is interesting. Well, yeah, and... I think I think specifically the ASMR versions of these videos have become super popular like even short form videos like TikTok like they're really popular there's people you know doing these short form videos like I, there was this girls on um TikTok that I saw recently that does um these videos where she just eats a stick of butter but she dips it into different things so she'll be like a stick of butter and marinara sauce, a stick of butter wrapped in a fruit roll up. And so those are kind of crazy. I, I don't, I couldn't possibly fathom eating a stick of butter, but yeah, she doesn't talk. She just, you know, whatever. Well, and I think I've seen some other videos of hers where she eats like a massive, like king crab leg or something, you know, other, you know, just kind of outrageously sized <laughs> food items. Ooh, that sounds good. That sounds like an appropriate amount of food. A stick of butter. Oh, oh. butter. Yeah. But, um, anyways, moving on. So, uh, uh, the the person you mentioned, Nikocado Avocado, uh, he's known for, you know, obviously doing the mukbangs. And he does a lot of those, like, crazy ones where he's, like, eating, like, 20 Krispy Kreme donuts in one sitting or something. Or, I don't know. 
just these wild challenges where he buys like everything off the Cheesecake Factory menu, you know, buying everything off of this thing's menu and, and sitting down with all of it. It's just, it's wild. But um, he's most known for being like super dramatic, over the top, uh, you know, just, just very, very wild, you know, kind of these crazy facial expressions and, you know, reactions to things. Um, but anyways, so what I've learned in like researching this is that a lot of creators who do this, like do not even come close to eating all the food. They will edit it specifically so that way they like will take a bite and they'll either like spit it out. They'll like hide some of the food away that was originally on the plate before. They'll do whatever. So it looks like they're eating all of it, but they're not really eating it. And this is what I, okay. It it feels like there's two camps here. Maybe there isn't, but there's like, I mean, you said this started as like, oh, social Mm -hmm. and it's an eating show and like, it's like you're hanging out that kind of thing and watching people eat. But it feels like they're also trying to show off how much food they have and like deceive people on how much they're eating. And like, it's like a shock factor thing. Yeah, absolutely. People click on it because, oh, that's so much food. I think it's the shock. Are there, the pe- shock are there some people that do one of those and some people that do the other one? Or is like everybody does, everybody does the shock factor. Like what, what, what about the whole social you know i think there's still people that do the the you know how it was how it originally started i think there are definitely people out there that still treat it that way and for them like a mukbang is is for them to sit down talk with their viewers have a conversation um and eat a meal together you know but for a lot of uh youtubers and other creators they're like how can i make the most money you know, I got to do what everyone else is doing. So I'm going to go buy like 20 cheeseburgers and eat two of them, you know. So that moves us into the criticism of mukbangs. Ah, just now. So, <laughs> right. We got good, good timing. So um, a lot of people complain and, and I think partially rightfully so that mukbangs, um, encourage people to this sort of unhealthy eating like it's hard because part of me knows like obviously they're not eating all that food but then there's other part of you that goes how are they able to eat all that food and like still live a normal life yeah but also you are like obviously don't eat all that food but it's not obvious because they're trying to hide it well yeah they're very you know they're good they're good at making their content it's so it's not obvious it's just your perception or like okay well how could a person eat all that food you know well yeah lots of people have criticized that it it promotes unhealthy eating um specifically unhealthy eating habits not just unhealthy eating but uh the south korean government actually tried to regulate mukbang content saying it caused binge eating Um, but there's so much backlash from just the general population um and and no like real evidence that it actually caused binge eating um so they nothing ended up coming of it like they weren't they it didn't proceed because there were so many people that were against the idea and um 
I actually found this interesting. I'm going to just kind of read this verbatim. Um, I don't remember exactly where... I think this was on Wikipedia, but um, I'll, I'll cite my sources. Uh, I'm just going to read this verbatim because I thought this was interesting. A study which investigated the popularity of mukbang and its health impacts on the public analyzed media coverage, articles, and YouTube video content related to mukbang and concluded that people who frequently watch mukbang may be more susceptible to adopting poor eating habits. In a survey involving 380 non-nutrition majors at a university in, uh, I guess in South Korea, uh, and their tendencies to watch mukbang and its close variant cookbong, which cookbong is just cooking, not eating it necessarily. Um, a significant 29.1% of frequent mukbang watchers self-diagnosed negative habits, such as increased intake of processed and delivered foods or eating out. Mukbang has also been credited as a dietary restriction device for curbing food cravings and excessive watching may be related with the exasperation or relapse of eating disorders. I found that very interesting that that study showed that because I don't know you so I think we just don't realize how much like certain things that we watch or whatever impact us but especially something like that if it has like a psychological effect on you you know it's kind of surprising that it would have that strong of an effect on someone but it's possible I've also I also read a few YouTubers that had been pretty open about their their health and, like, the toll being a mukbang creator takes on them. You know, just the way they feel, their overall health, uh, their, like, digestive system, things like that. Like, how negatively it's impacted them, but that they, you know, that's their job. They make money doing it. That's what they do. Um, so, I don't know. I, I Part of me is like, just stop doing it. Dude, why do you need to do it? But then the part of me is like, well, it's your job. Um, and actually, uh, there was one, uh, creator in Italy passed away at the age of 42, uh, after three, make three years of making mukbang content. He died of a heart attack, uh, most likely from his like intake of, you know, really heavy processed, super fatty type foods. Cause that's, once again, that's the kind of stuff that gets the clicks. Like you say, whoa, look at this crazy meal I'm eating. You know, I don't know if it, my other thought is, is it like people that are like, I can't eat that. So I'm going to watch someone else eat it. It'll make me feel better. Like I'll live vicariously through them. I don't know if that's part of it. And I just want to be like, just eat the, just eat it, but eat a small amount. It's okay. <laughs> just eat the cheeseburger every once in a while. <laughs> it's okay. It's not going to kill you. What will kill you <laughs> is eating 300 of them in one sitting. <laughs> And then they're like, what will kill me is not getting a paycheck. Right. Other criticism um, has been uh, the insane, insane amounts of food waste that happens in these videos. Obviously, you know, they're not eating a lot of it. What happens to it? It gets thrown away because they take bites out of everything. So if they got like, you know, 20 different dishes, a bite is taken out of all of that. You can't donate that. You're e you've eaten out of it. Plus, it's usually, like, from a restaurant, like, made. What are you going to do? With, who are you going to give that to? You know, that's one thing I appreciate about cooking YouTubers. Well, at least a lot of the ones that we watch. 
They always show, they make a lot of food and then they always show that they gave it to people. Yeah. Like their friends are there eating, their families they're eating. Yeah. I agree. And I think that's something that I've, like, when, when I watch these videos, I think about that. I'm like, oh my goodness, what a waste. Like, they're really wasting so much food. And, um, in China, actually, the government, like, basically prohibited a lot of these videos because of the food waste. Like, people that were making mukbang videos had to stop or were getting, like, you know, harassing texts and contacted by the government and stuff to stop what they're doing because they were wasting food like it was they're not allowed to do it because <laughs> it's the government does not let them so you know I, I don't know if that's the right way to handle it but um they're apparently very serious about their food waste there um and lastly another big criticism has been around uh animal cruelty this is a little, a little gross, um, but, um, you know, just turn off the, the, the thing for a few minutes and then come back. Um, basically, there's a few, not a lot, I don't think, but a few mukbang creators who have made videos where they essentially are eating live, like, seafood. So, octopus, squid, uh you know, those kinds of things, literally eating them when they're still moving, like taking bites out of them. That's not particularly uncommon around the world, though. Sure. Um, I mean, it is kind of, I've seen some of these videos and it is shocking. I mean, like they're moving fully alive and they go and like put them in their mouths and swallow them fully alive. So essentially they die by like what their stomach bile tearing it apart i mean what a terrible way to die it's so painful but also there's one specific creator who's been mostly like called out for doing it but she doesn't do these videos anymore but she used to where she'd like have a big tank of eels and like pour salt on them and watch their like flesh yeah see that's a i mean okay like the octopus stuff i as as far as i understand that's like you know people around the world do that as like normal food sure i don't want to like hate on any specific culture like if that's your cultural norm then sure but you know obviously there's like a limit to being cruel to an animal yeah where if you're taking you know this like an octopus smart animal and they like she was like ripping the like mouths off of them while they were still alive like stuff like that it was just cruel um all for the sake of like entertainment you know so those are, that's, I mean, it's not just one creator. Other creators have done it too, but yeah, it, uh, not, not I mean, great. the thing with the eel tank doesn't sound, I mean, that doesn't, that, you know, that's more uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah, actually, I mean, why would, why should that be more uncomfortable than the octopus thing? Maybe just because I've heard of the octopus thing in other contexts. Sure. Well, I think it matters, right? Like, is it a tiny little... Like, they're so small. You can take a bite and it's gone, you know, whatever. Or are you, like, putting a massive... Which I've seen this. It's so nasty. Putting a massive, massive like, octopus or squid or whatever that's still alive and swallowing that. I just... So gross. So nasty. Anyways, that's, like, the main, you know, criticism that 
those those few topics and i think they're valid they're very valid now that being said um i think there are still creators like i said that are out there that are doing kind of the original content of sitting in front of the camera eating their meal maybe cooking their meal and then eating it that's you know sort of this wholesome sort of let's cook a dinner together and eat our dinner together and have a conversation and it's the social aspect and it's whatever but it's definitely become more of the oh my gosh can't believe it's this many calories oh my gosh can't believe I spent this much money on this meal oh my gosh I can't believe I got the new Taco Bell whatever but I got 30 of them you know more like you won't believe (laughs) I I mean I personally like I said I do not watch these videos but they're like so so popular especially on YouTube I know people that do watch them and enjoy watching them. Yeah, what's your what's your context? What how, how did you get this idea for this for this? Episode? Well, so like I said, I watched that documentary on YouTube, and that was really really good. And I was so fascinated by, like, she talks about like sort of the psychology stuff behind it, and I was so fascinated by that. And then, um, obviously, I've known about Nick Akato for a while. Like he's. He's hard to miss if you're, like, kind of on the YouTube sphere. He's, you know, very... There's there's also, amongst all of the mukbang creators, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama, of course. Which, you love drama. Yeah. I'm not going to go into all that, because I, honestly, it's way more than I can understand. Because, I, I mean, it's different when you're, like, you've been following a creator for a while, and then you're like, oh, that drama, or whatever. But I don't follow any of these people. I never have, and, you know, I could, I did, I did go and read about what happened, but I'm like, I'm not gonna, I, I don't know enough. Anyways, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, go check out some mukbangs, guys. I mean, if, if that's your cup of tea. Uh, Chris, what did you learn about mukbangs? What did I learn? I learned a lot. Because I didn't know that much. <laughs> I don't know. I You took me on a journey. At first I was like, oh, it's that gross thing on YouTube that's like makes you uncomfortable. And then you went into some history about it being about social and, and you know, eating together and bringing back, you know, the family meal kind of thing. And then you brought it back around and it was gross again. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> you brought you brought it back to where I started. I'm so uh, sorry. <laughs> but I learned a lot along the way. A good YouTube video essay documentary can really can really inspire a lot, like a podcast episode. Absolutely. I mean I've watched I watched this documentary like probably almost a year ago. But I like it was good enough that I was like, ooh. And then I, you know, I don't know. I feel like I've, I'm aware of mukbang culture, I suppose. And now, of course, all my YouTube recommended is going to be mukbangs. Maybe I'm going to get into it. You know, there's a lot of subcultures that I know a lot about that I don't participate in. So, you know, similar kind of thing. Speed running, video game speed running, for example. I don't really watch a lot of video game speed runs, but there's a lot of 
information on the internet about the subculture, even if you're not part of the subculture. Oh, sure. We might talk about that one day. All right. Well, we'll put at least the documentary in the description. I don't know if we'll put any mukbangers in the description. Uh, Maybe one or two, but I, I named them. If you, you know, if you're interested, you go check them out, but at your own risk. We'll put the sources in too. Um, yes. Last time Michaela had some good sources and I just had Wikipedia. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it's going to be the same thing this time. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I guess we'll take the quote commercial break right now. Be right back. Bum, dun, dun. Did that? Did I get the key? Did I, maybe you can line that up and see if I got the the key right for the music. Maybe you did. All right, welcome back to the show, my part of the show. <laughs> it's to my all, part of the show now. To everybody that skipped ahead of whatever boring topic that was, to this topic, welcome. Hey now. <laughs> To everybody that didn't want to hear my topic, you can turn it off now, I guess. But we would really like if you stayed around. Yeah, because that's the point, is to show differing perspectives and different types of topics. And to learn something new. (laughs) Michaela just gave a cheesy little face. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Last two weeks, we talked about games, video game and a card game. Today, that is not the case. We're not talking about a game. What do you know about the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit? Let, let me let me scope this out because there's a lot of things to talk about here. Today we are going and and you know I don't want to give you any spoilers for what do you know about? I know you know th- some things about it. It's a book. They're both books. Today we are going to talk about books. So that is the scope of the discussion. So not what do you know not about movies. Them? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, I know there are three books in like the Lord of the Rings series. And then there's lots of other sort of short stories and offshoots. Like the Cimmerillion's not a short story, but uh, that's like a history book essentially um, of the Lord of the Rings universe. And then, yeah, there's three books for Lord of the Rings. It's uh, something, um, Two Towers and The Return of the King. What's the first one? I don't remember. And then The Hobbit is just one book. And I've actually read that book. I like that book. All right. That's what I know. Awesome. Okay, some of that was right. Well, some of that was not technically right. But, I mean, does that matter? Also, I know it's old, and it's all written by J.R. Tolkien. That's right. I know that. That's right. That's right. How old? Here, let's do... Let's do we'll, we'll, we'll throw one guessing game in here. How, what, what year do you think The Hobbit was published? Oh, man. Mm, is it in the 40s? It's pretty close. 
Final guess. 30s. <laughs> Final guess. 1937. Okay. Uh, Lord of the Rings. That, that was that was probably in the 40s, right? Because The Hobbit was first. The Hobbit was first. Uh, that was in the 50s. So oh, let's get into. I didn't realize it was what big of a gap. Let's get let's get into specifics here. Here we go. All right, the way that I uh, did my outline today. Um, in the past, I've put like fun facts stuff at the end. Today, we're gonna start with quick facts, and then we'll go into a deeper dive, and then we'll talk about cultural impact because I always have a cultural impact. Yeah, you're section. so much more like structured than I am. I'm kind of like here's the information. All right, quick facts. The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are fantasy fiction novels by J.R.R. Tolkien. That's one of those technically not right things about yours. You call it The Lord of the Rings series. Actually, The Lord of the Rings is one book or intended to be one book, published in three volumes. Oh, interesting. Those are sort of the three parts of Lord of the Rings. I gotcha. Okay. Wikipedia doesn't have exact figures. But it cites The Hobbit, around 100 million copies sold. The Lord of the Rings, because it was published in three volumes, but sometimes it's published as one volume, it doesn't have like exact figures. It says around 150 million. So according to Wikipedia's list, if you exclude texts of a religious ideological philosophical or political nature, so like ignoring like the Bible and stuff, Wikipedia says The Hobbit is around the sixth best-selling book ever. Wow. And I guess Lord of the Rings would be up there. The Lord of the yeah. Rings wasn't on the list because it said, you know, it's hard to get exact yeah. figures for it. Right, because I'm sure it's, you know, it they're each sold separately a lot of times. Would they count each of the separate sellings as towards Lord of the Rings or yeah, would they do know. themselves? Yeah, that'd be hard to track. But on Wikipedia's list, excluding religious and philosophical texts, yeah. Hobbit was six. Which um, it makes you think that the, yeah, if The Lord of the Rings has sold more copies, it's obviously yeah. up there. That's pretty cool. Wow. The Lord of the Rings has notably been adapted into three major Hollywood films from 2001-2003. Also notably adapted into an animated feature by Ralph Bakshi in 1978. Not completely adapted. It actually doesn't do the whole story. They just called it Lord of the Rings, but they didn't finish it. Whatever, you know, <laughs> they didn't finish the story. The Hobbit has been notably adapted as an animated TV special in 1977 by Rankin and Bass, mm-hmm. the Rudolph guys. Oh, yeah. Um, and also another three major Hollywood films mm-hmm. from 2012 to 2014. <laughs> Is that face? Um, we're not here to talk about movies. That yeah, is just okay. a fun fact. We'll about move these on. Books. We'll move on. Um. Okay, last last fun fact or quick fact. Currently streaming weekly on Amazon Prime Video, a new TV show based on the same world as Lord of the Rings. It's called The Rings of Power. Yeah, we still need to watch that. Yeah, when I had mentioned to you earlier today that there was a preparation for this episode that I had wanted to do, but it's no big deal. Oh. That was to have watched, watched this it. show I gotcha. so I could you know, talk, maybe talk about it on the podcast yeah. a little bit. But that's okay. Uh, we'll ha- we'll want to do come back for another episode about the movies as sure. opposed to the books. I mean, we could talk about it then. Yeah. 
All right. We're going to talk about sort of the history of these books and a little bit about the plot. All right. J.R.R. Tolkien, born 1892, died 1973. So in 1973, he was like 82, 81. Um, he was a British. Uh, he was a professor of Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> I was going to say a British professor, but I wanted to, but I, I tried to change it. So I said he was a British. All right. J.R.R. Tolkien was British. Uh, English, I think, specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a professor of Anglo-Saxon and then later a uh, professor of literature at Oxford University. Okay, yep. um, there's a lot to say about his life. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, we're just going to talk about important things in the context of this book. Uh, his chief interests for the context here uh, were languages and mythology and folklore. Yeah. Um so mythology and folklore being the legends and stories of people in the past. So not history, but this what did the people of history tell us their stories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew about the language thing because I know that that's a big part of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. The language he wrote. The um, languages. Yeah, and in terms of mythology, folklore, and also, you know, epic poems ep- and stuff like, like Beowulf. Um, actually, one thing he did before writing... Lord of the Rings was he attempted to make an English translation of Beowulf. I mean, you know, that had been done before, but like his own translation it was actually published way later after uh, he died by his son. Oh, wow. But yeah, so languages and mythology, folklore, old stories. Um, so he fought in World War One. So in 1917, uh, I think, um, is when he started to write his own imagined myths and legends um, about a new world. He called this world Middle Earth. He was sort of a mishmash of fairy tales and myths and like Norse mythology and English fairy tales and all these things sort of mashed together, which mind you, nowadays this is a typical thing, right? Fantasy world, castles, elves dwarves wizards all the stuff dungeons and dragons we mentioned that last week this was not the case i mean if tolkien's middle earth was the first one of these yeah invented this right i mean he didn't invent like elves he didn't invent fairies no he but he put together all of these elements that had been in fairy tales that had been in mythology and he combined them together into this fantasy world which we call fantasy now that is now in everything right Right. So yeah, so in while well, he's fighting in World War One, he starts to invent his own this own world, right? Like while during the war, like while he was I I think yeah, his first notes wow. about this world was he wrote in notebooks when he was like in the trenches and stuff like that. Wow. Guess it's a way to escape. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. He's he's said um later that he sort of meant for it to be like a mythology for England because a lot of um, the mythology of the Anglo-Saxon people or the original people of the British Isles has been lost to history because they were sort of subsumed by the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, so it's like this is sort of like a mythology for the English is sort of one of the things that he wanted to make out of this. Another reason he did this was sort of a platform for languages that he had developed as like a hobby. He had 
you know, created his own languages because he was a linguist. He was a, that was, that was one of, he, he was an enthusiast. Um, and so he made these myths and stories for this imagined world to include these languages, to include them in poems and songs and stuff inside these legends. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the published works, because at this time, and this was for years and years, I mentioned 1917, The Hobbit wasn't published until 1937. Yeah. So over years and years, like 20 years, he just, these are just personal things his own version of these ancient legends his own version of these epic poems his own version of the stuff with his own languages and his own characters and his own world just for himself um so 1937 uh here's the story this is how the story goes whether or not it's actually true as he was grading papers one day and he came to a blank page at the end of one of the papers and he just thought in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit and he wrote it down and that and then he was like i should make a story out of this <laughs> a hobbit wasn't i mean you know a hobbit is like a made-up word just right. like at the at the spot so who knows if that is a true story i think tolkien in some letter recollected that that was what happened oh right? okay so, <laughs> it's pretty funny uh. um so yeah uh, looking at like Wikipedia, I don't, he, he had, I don't think he had published anything. He maybe published like a few, uh, journals or magazines or something. And it had mostly been like children's rhymes and stuff like that. So it was sort of in the avenue of, you know, children's literature, let's say, which The Hobbit is. The Hobbit is a book aimed for children, say like eight to 12 ish. Um, in the story, a hobbit, Bilbo Baggins which for the unfamiliar hobbit are like people, but they're short and they have hairy feet and they like to eat food and they like to chill and they don't like anything that they is don't dangerous. Like adventure. They don't like adventure except for Bilbo Baggins. Mm-hmm. Um, well, except for, you know, Bilbo Baggins after he goes on the adventure before he's very like, no thanks. Right. But yeah, so he lives in this hobbit hole. He lives a cozy life. Um, he's approached by a wizard named Gandalf, big tall guy, pointy hat, um, sort of based on sort of like the Merlin from Sword in the Stone or stuff. Uh, or not Sword in the Stone. Sword in the Stone is a Disney movie just from, you know, King Arthur and stuff at the time. Now everybody else is based on Gandalf, you know. So he shows up and he's like, you should go on this adventure. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And then eventually he does. And he ends up going on this big adventure with 13 dwarves and they go to kill this dragon and get this treasure back. And it's a big adventure and it's a fun time. And I agree. I mean, that's The Hobbit. Yeah. I say if you haven't read it, you should. It's a great book. It is a really good book. And it's honestly, it's a pretty easy read. It's not. Yeah, it's not a hard read. So The Hobbit, as we established earlier, is super popular, sold a lot of copies big book like big like popular big popular book um it's it was supposedly set in like a general fairy tale world but tolkien always had the back of his mind that oh this is like in my Mm -hmm. or this could be in my middle earth world that i've been working on this whole time right all of these legends and myths 
obviously popular book. So the publisher is like, you should write another book. Tolkien was like, I write slow. They're like, okay, it's fine. He's, he kind of showed them, well, here's some ideas. I have all these myths and legends and history of this, of this mythical world. And, you know, this, this isn't like, you know, like, like this is not, it's nothing not like a kid's the Hobbit. book. It's nothing like the Hobbit. This is like out there. Epic poem, yeah. songs of myth and legend, Beowulf level stuff. Right. Yeah. So like, no, you just do more Hobbits. Right. So Tolkien is like, oh, do more Hobbits. Eventually he's like, okay, I'm going to write this second Hobbit. Um, and he gets this, this idea. Well, I can spin this second Hobbit into this wider world and make this, you know, more grown up book that still has the Hobbits, but it connects the Hobbit to all this other stuff I've been working on. It makes it this big grand story. Mm-hmm. So this is the Lord of the Rings, which he published in three volumes. The Fellowship of the Ring, and you mentioned the two others, The Two Towers and Return of the King. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't think of the name of the first one. He published them uh, over 1954, 1955. He does write slow. (laughs) Yeah. So the story starts, a quick overview of the story. So it starts with the hobbits from the first book, right? Centered on Bilbo's nephew Frodo, you, you know, some years later. Uh, the thrust of the plot is that this magic ring that Bilbo happened to find in The Hobbit, that was just some side adventure where he found this magic ring, just happens to be a mystical embodiment of a dark evil being that is going to take over the world and it's like the darkest thing in the world. Just happens to be, you know. Yeah, just by chance. Um, so Gandalf is like, Hobbits take this and we're going to go to Rivendell, which is like this big, important elf place. And then all these important characters in Tolkien's world all meet up and they discuss, what are we going to do about this? So they go out on an adventure with a group of characters. There's the hobbits. There's these these men. There's the dwarf, the elf, the wizard. All these people go out. They go on this adventure. Eventually, you know, they all split up. And they go their different ways and just the story gets wider and wider and wider and more big battles and more important stuff and nothing like The Hobbit, basically. Um, starts out like The Hobbit. It's just this adventure with The Hobbits and it turns into this big giant thing. It's nothing like The Hobbit. It's big battles and wars and very serious. And yeah, that's, that's, that's basically it. Lord of the Rings, also a big, really popular book. And eventually... You know, there'd been lots of attempts to make, you know, film adaptations or other adaptations, um, but none of them really stuck, except for the, anim- you know, the animated film, until 2001 to through 2003, when so three films were made, which was a huge, gigantic film hit. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that's not the topic of today to talk about the films in depth in particular, but... I'm sure it skyrocketed interest and sales in the books because I bet there were a lot of people who had never read the books that saw the movies and yeah um footnote on the deep dive section those myths and legends that Tolkien had been writing since World War One and he had all these writings were compiled by his son after he died published as a book called The Silmarillion Mm mm-hmm and there's also other books because yet, you know, the main thing he was writing, which is like this big giant history of Middle Earth and all of these things that happen and compiled from like the beginning of creation up until a certain point. Mm-hmm. 
that that was one thing he had been working on and that was published as Silmarillion. He also had other, you know, scraps of writings and songs and poems and stuff like that which had been which have been published by his son after his death in other forms as well Mm -hmm. um the new amazon show rings of power is based on parts of the silmarillion Mm -hmm. um it's actually not it's actually there's a real scrap at the end of the silmarillion um because one part of the lord of the rings is that there's these rings because there's it's lord of the rings there's more than one ring the, the other rings don't really play that big of a part in the story right um of the lord of the rings but the show is gonna the the amazon show and i haven't you know we haven't watched it but it's sort of about some of the events that take place behind these how all these rings were made right and that's just a little part at the end of the silmarillion it's like a chapter or whatever mm-hmm. um not that the chapters are short yeah but yeah, um, I don't think the show has the giant, you know, 20 page single spaced uh, creation myth and all right. the gods. <laughs> all right. Cultural impact section. I mentioned earlier, this was the father of the fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually think of it as Tolkienian fantasy. If there's anything where it's dwarves elves wizards castles uh orcs uh, you know all those things i think of that as the tolkienian fantasy right which is like you know so popular now oh yeah yeah there's lots of different things like that yeah so so that was a big you know big splash in the the world of you know literature in general um to think about something that's so ubiquitous and this oh, yeah. was like the invention the big yeah i mean it's probably one of the most popular like like game of thrones or yeah. um i mean even some of the sci-fi stuff they kind of play off of of sort of some of that fantasy aspect like the way those movies are made not mo- books are written you know that kind of stuff it's it definitely you can see they get inspiration from it how so like what do you mean in particular I don't know. I mean, even with like Star Wars, you notice like they've yeah. they've taken like some of the, um, I don't know, just like the fantasy elements, like some of the worlds they create and stuff. Mm-hmm. It sort of feels has the same feel as some of the fantasy. It's interesting when uh, they made Star Wars, George Lucas was you know really into the myths and legends yeah, and all that stuff right. that Tolkien was into. As right, well. right, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think it kind of bleeds into different things like yeah. that, but. Also, yeah, I mean, fantasy is so mm-hmm. huge right now, especially Game of Thrones. Like, that's the and, big thing. And the thing is, it's like a lot of this stuff Tolkien didn't invent. Sure. He didn't invent elves. Elves have been around in fairy tales forever. Right. They didn't invent, you know, dwarves. Those are like a Norse mythology kind of thing. Right. Um, He didn't invent... Mm, did like he invent hobbits goblins yeah i did invent hobbits okay that's what i thought and that's actually interesting i don't think any other anything you like references like anything that mm-hmm. isn't lord of the rings would not use or reference hobbits but they use the other usually stuff. they say halflings that's i think oh, that's what they're yeah. called in like, Dungeons and Dragons. yeah i was about to say yep yeah that's true um yeah there are a couple there are a couple things tolkien um contributed to the english language uh orc o-r-c that mm-hmm. word was not a at least not a common english word at the time 
dwarves with a V. Oh, uh huh. At the time that The Hobbit was written, it would be more common to say dwarfs. Right, with an F. Um, but like Tolkien's really particular about that kind of stuff. Like hmm. in Tolkien's like introduction to The Hobbit, you'd think it'd be like, oh, this is why I wrote this book, yada, yada. But no, he goes on for like three pages about like why you say dwarves instead right. of dwarfs in this book and like the particulars <laughs> of the language. Right. It's very important. Yeah. Um, because that's what it was important for him. Yeah. That's why he wrote all this stuff because of, you know, language his language. And, yeah. Um, his languages, which are, by the way, speaking of his languages, um, they are Sindarin and Quenya are the two elvish languages, which are the two like most important languages in his world. Um, which is really interesting. Quenya is sort of a lord of the rings latin where it's like a language that everybody spoke a long time ago like the roman empire but now all of the other languages have taken roots off of it and then Sindarin is like more like what the common tongue is now for the elves okay um, gotcha then there's like the dwarvish languages and they write with the runes you know which is sort of a take on like norse norse history and all that stuff yeah lots of the, you know there's these are all like very linguistically complete like analyze you know it's not like they're legit you know like languages that you can speak and they have grammar and all that kind of stuff right yeah it's pretty amazing all right let's see some of the best-selling books ever but now probably more popular because of the critically acclaimed films 2001-2003 the hobbit is one of the most beloved young reader books it's sort i feel like it's sort of between like being a like a first reader book or but but between that and like a YA book it's like not quite I mean I don't know maybe it's it is a little bit higher reader level than a lot of YA books but oh yeah it it maybe not the subject matter I don't know I feel like it's, and this maybe dips into my personal experience as a kid trying to read The Hobbit I could never get past like the first chapter I was like this is so long oh okay um which actually going back to it it is really long like it's way longer than all the other chapters the first chapter yeah um so maybe i just needed to hang on but um (laughs) it's hard when you're eight (laughs) yeah the hobbit was also adapted into three films which were not quite as well received as the lord of the rings films right um (laughs) not that they didn't look good (laughs) story for another time (laughs) I think there there were like some like big like um, movements in the 60s and 70s and fan groups and stuff. And like Wikipedia cites it as a counterculture movement or something. People would say Frodo lives or uh, Gandalf something. I, I've, I, I, I don't have the Wikipedia up in front of me, but, you know, it was real like popular subculture. <laughs> what? Which I think, you know, those the kind of people that were really into those books are the kind of people that like made Dungeons and Dragons in the 70s or made, you know, those like the 80s fantasy films mm-hmm. that um, like, you know, uh, like Conan the Barbarian or, or Willow or that kind of stuff. Um, because that was before it was really mainstream, right? You made a you made a face. You're like, hmm. I'm just trying to understand what. what oh, the Frodo lives. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't get the, I don't get the, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I I know that it was really popular. 
Um, <laughs> or not really, you know, mainstream popular. Right, but right, I know right, that right. it was like a thing. Like people wear it on t-shirts and stuff. <laughs> I guess one last thing to note about cultural impact, and we have talked about this a lot. It was one of the first and probably the best or, you know, the best example of this, you know, extended universe that, you know, is a really popular story, but there's all of this backstory behind everything Mm -hmm. and it's all written out. And, you know, the reason is because like he, you know, was, he had all this stuff in his head like 20 years before he started even publishing anything. Right. Um, and there's all this stuff you can go to. There's maps, there's languages, there's character histories there's you know the history of everything from the creation of the world up until the end of whatever um the lord of the rings actually is sort of the end of the story mm-hmm. there's not really much written by tolkien that documents what happens after the lord of the mm. rings very small amount which i think is sort of what he meant it's like the big good and evil battle yeah um there was i know that there was times in his life after he wrote the Lord of the Rings that he had tried to start to write a sequel to the Lord of the Rings, but he never got that far. Mm. Um, he'd written about in letters. He actually wrote a lot of letters that were like documented and you could like read where people asked him questions about his stories or, you know, other various correspondences that are compiled by his son. There's a lot of writings of Tolkien that were compiled by his son after he died and published and you can find them all. One in particular is there's there's a big series of books called History of Middle Earth, mm-hmm. which is not the history of the world inside the world Middle Earth, but it's the history of Tolkien creating. Oh, Earth. OK. That's pretty um, cool. Which is something I would like to read someday. Yeah. I'm still on the Silmarillion. Right. Um, <laughs> I've heard that that is very difficult to get. It, yeah. Um, it's a little bit. It's it's not it doesn't it's not like a novel. It's like history class. Right. Yeah. So. All all of this stuff and all every, everybody wants that now. Right. Everybody wants this extended world. Everybody wants, you know, Harry Potter wants that. Harry Potter wants to put out the Harry book Potter of, wants to be Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, that's a different story. Harry Potter wants to put out their book of potions that makes it look like there's this expanded world where all the potions have all the specific. You right. know, they want to put out their their handbook or their whatever. But Tolkien you know, did it first. Well, but if you think about it, it's like oh, Harry Potter puts out their handbook of potions or whatever, and some intern writes it, and J.K. Rowling right. looks at it and it's like, like oh, okay, okay, this is okay. Yeah. Whereas Tolkien. If they had a handbook of something for Lord of the Rings, it was based on something Tolkien wrote like right. 80 years ago right? before the Lord of the Rings was It even seems published. like a lot of the stuff with Lord of the Rings is pretty like, like sacred, right? Like the things that he's yeah. doing. And you know, that's one reason why fans get upset over, you know, things being changed, movies being or, bad or, yeah. or things being changed from the source material or, you know, or this new show coming out has some fans saying this, some fans saying that. But that's why, I mean, you know, that's why it feels more, quote, sacred because there was all of this stuff for years. Well, and you would expect that whoever owns the, like, properties or licensing or whatever of Lord of the Rings would have, like, like, milked that for all it's worth, like they have with all these other, you know, franchises and been like we're gonna make the lord of the rings this 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 and this and this and i'm sure they've done some of that but i don't think to the extent that 
um they haven't to the extent of like what disney does with star wars and all that but like i'm thinking they probably have made a lord of the rings like cookbook like a themed cookbook you know yeah that's happened for sure but but they probably haven't gone as far as like making something that is like going to impact the the history of whatever mm-hmm. it is or the you know the lore of whatever well um you know one of the reasons why the movies the original movies are both really popular but also people that like the book also like the movies a lot is because those people that made those movies like were like th- Tolkien is the like it's the sacred like right. like you were saying it's so sacred right everything has to be exactly right and if it's not it needs to have a really really good reason to be changed right um so yeah and 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 having read the book and seen the movie i agree i mean it's very close way closer to the it feels way closer to the book i mean maybe they've technically changed more things than some other movies have to their book Mm. but like it feels way closer to the spirit of the book than most adaptations do yeah so yeah it's kind of a unique situation i guess with his i don't know just the i don't know the intensity the like amount of time the amount of his every ounce of his being he put into like making all this stuff like you can't spend that much time on something and not have it be like all of you like that is yeah i mean it's much more than not to say that the the things that people write like Game of Thrones or whatever that they aren't putting a lot into it. It's just different. It's different. Yeah. When a lot of that stuff are like taking like twenty percent of their things from Tolkien, you know, right? Ri- not quote not ripping off, but you know, they're getting all of their kind of inspiration or you know ideas. Yeah. But I mean, you know, Tolkien gets his got his inspiration ideas from storytellers sure. of the past as well. That's yeah. how storytelling works. Right. There's nothing new under the sun, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it says. <laughs> um, we always have a my story section in my segments. Oh yes, we do uh, love a my story. Uh, it's like your story with mukbangs. You're like never. I don't like I, this. I, I never. No, I never touched. <laughs> don't it. blame me for. <laughs> <laughs> don't check my. Don't check my search history. <laughs> uh, well, you could check it now. It's gonna show I searched for mukbangs, but not any time in the last few months. <laughs> <laughs> I deleted all of those. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, my story. Uh, let's see. As a child of, you know, I was born in the like, you know, later nineties. But as a child of that time, this, this is everywhere. You know, Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. Um, because they're huge. They were like the big giant franchise. You know, like Star Wars was for people of the eighties and the nineties. Although I guess Star Wars was also because Star Wars movies also newer Star Wars movies came out same time as Lord of the Rings. But this was the thing. It was around. I don't know. I was never like I never like I knew the references. I knew the catchphrases. I'd seen Mm -hmm. some of the scenes and stuff. But I was, you know, it goes stuff goes over your head. Sure. It definitely. I mean, Lord of the Rings definitely is more. You weren't old enough to even watch goes over your head. And, and that's it's it's not like the kind of thing where like you can watch Star Wars as like a eight year old and comprehend the plot. Sure. You can watch Lord of the Rings as an eight year old and it's not like it's like vulgar or violent or anything. No. 
well, I mean, it is a little bit. It's violent, but it, it you know, not. You, you cannot comprehend the plot. No. Not even close. You probably can't even comprehend the plot as like a 13 year old. Right. Right. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I, I can sp- say myself, like, I know I watched those movies when I was like 13, but I like watching it as an adult. I feel like I'm watching it for the first time again because yeah. you're like, wait, oh, I actually get this now. <laughs> um. So, yeah, that was the case. Um, although a lot of my friends are really into it. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I was very, very into the bonus features, behind the scenes, special features of anything. Yeah. Um, I would usually get that out and watch that instead of watching the movie. First? Of stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, not before I'd ever seen it. Oh, 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 yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Um, and the Lord of the Rings DVDs has a lot of this stuff. Yes, I remember. Um, I've watched lot. some of that, yeah. So I I did watch that a lot. As a kid. Yep. Um, as a teen, I became more interested in actually watching it. Still, a lot went over my head at the time, like fourteen or fifteen or something. Yeah. I'd be like, oh yeah, I seen Lord of the Rings. It's cool, but like I couldn't like tell you all the characters sure. and stuff. Um. Eventually, you know, I as like various times, I've been like, oh, I want to watch Lord of the Rings, this or that, or I get into it because I, you know, I'd watch the behind the scenes or something, or something remind me of it. Eventually, I got to comprehend the plot more and more. But, you know, still not like hardcore or anything like that. About two years ago, I started reading The Hobbit. And then I read Lord of the Rings. And then, you know, I watched the watched the movies and watched all the behind the scenes. Get, did everything. I got the lore videos on YouTube. Got every, I got my mind pumped with all of the everything, <laughs> right? And there we are now. So yeah, now I I know lots of stuff and I've read the all the book and the appendix and like a third of the Silmarillion and watch all the lore videos on YouTube. One thing about the Lord of the Rings when you read it, or at least when I read it, I was like, whenever it mentions like a location, like I cannot keep reading unless I flip back to the map oh, and like I know exactly where it is. Yeah. So I have a very good sense of like where everybody is. Oh, at all these points in this story oh, wow. geographically like even when you're watching the movie and, well, no, and then when i watched the movie like, oh. when i watched the movie after reading it i was like whoa i know where that is i know where that is you know they That's got this cool. right or they got this wrong mm-hmm. and then there's actually a, a minecraft server you can go on to where they recreated or they're they're working on recreating everything in oh that's cool um there's actually more than one uh but at, but you know once i know geography you can go on there yeah and usually people just type in the thing and they teleport to you know the place that they saw from the movie sure. but i was like well after i read the book i was like flying around and like trying i was like trying to find all of the places you know nice. by like walking there or flying there or whatever walking there would take way too long take hours this is like i don't know i think it's like 50th scale or something oh, okay which still takes hours to walk yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's 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 all I had prepared. I mean, there's plenty to talk about, obviously. We didn't sure. really even talk about the story that much. We also just talked about the book and the periphery around the book. But uh Yeah. I mean, you know, there's plenty to talk about. And and you know what? If we come back to this and we talk about movies, maybe that's a better time because we don't have to talk about history and we don't have to talk about all that stuff. We right. have a better time to actually talk about, you know, the story. Um, and maybe by then we'll have seen some of this TV show. Yeah, I, I'm sure we will. I think we both want to. Yeah. We both want to watch it, so. 
Yeah, and this isn't something, you know, this is the what do you know about podcasts, but I know you've seen the movies. You, oh, sure. You know basic outline yeah. of the story. I grew up, like, watching it. It was, like, on in our house then. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I read, I got The Hobbit read to me as a little kid, but mm-hmm. then I've also read it myself. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with the, you know, story, but I think the history behind it, I really didn't know anything about. Yeah. And somewhat recently we've talked about a little bit of it, but, um, yeah, I, it's fascinating. I mean, definitely like beyond anything I can, I'm, I feel like people are creative in general, but I am not that, like, (laughs) not that creative. Like being able to literally create an entire world in your brain. I mean, that is just. I mean, that's what Amazing. you do when you write a fantasy science fiction, you write a fiction book, you're creating right. a world in your brain. And I, it's interesting because it overlaps. It's not even just creativity. It's also like just straight up like he's intelligence, like so well, smart. Well, yeah, it's, he's uh, using his because he's a professor. I mean, yeah, it's not like he is, you know, working in an office and on the side he's doing his dream project. He's like, right. it's his job to research ancient languages and stories and all of this stuff and you know as his side project he like makes his own version of that right and then eventually because he's a professor and he's a writer he writes a book and it just happens to go along with that stuff and then it becomes this big deal and so he has a lot of time and more money to sit down and write a bigger book there you go yeah, it's it's very impressive. Very cool. Well, yeah. Um, awesome. So what did you learn? Well, I guess you just said what you learned. Yeah, I'll, I didn't realize that there were so many languages that he wrote. I thought it was just Elvish. That's I thought it was one. So that Elvish I did learn comprises that. two languages. Yeah, I didn't know that. The one of them, Quenya, the, the Latin, the Elf Latin, is like most... Uh, thought like most comprehensive and mm-hmm. like, the most amount of words that are on record and um whereas the other one is doesn't have as much documentation around it yeah i i wasn't i didn't even know i thought it was just elvish yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's mostly <laughs> most of the languages branch off of elvish and then the the languages that the dwarves speak are are like the only one that isn't like related in some way really i gotcha um, because all of the writing in the Lord of the Rings universe or whatever is mostly via these elf, um, I forget the writing systems called. Uh, there's, there's a word for, because, you know, in, in, in our world, there's more than one language that uses the Latin alphabet, right? Um, oh, sure. So this elvish Latin alphabet, the Tengwar is the name of that, that, the alphabet. Oh, okay. Um, anyways, I think we've rambled enough at the end of this section. <laughs> uh, seems like we're right on time for a good length episode. Yeah. So, thanks for sticking around this long. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, I'm going to shamelessly once again say, if you like this podcast, if you like this episode, leave us a five-star review. And uh, if you're on YouTube, like and subscribe. I've been like, yes. Uh, Leave us a comment. Any questions you may have. Engagement. 
what what did you what did you like about this episode what did you learn from our episode what do you know um we would love to hear from you yeah we want to hear when we need to we need to you know be like tell us what do you know about you know because that's the name of the show right well if there's ever any specific topic you want us to talk about too i mean we can learn about it so we do know about it but um yeah leave us a comment we're just so glad you're listening if you are listening if you're listening (laughs) if anyone made it this far i think our stats right now is like 20 random people according to the stats across the world that who knows maybe they're just robots and then like uh, a few family and friends (laughs) well we love our family and friends and we love our robots and we love our robots Guys, see you guys. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.